I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Philippa Strum, is a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and the center's former director of the Division of United States Studies. For two decades, she was a professor of political science and is now Professor Emerita at the City University of New York, focusing on constitutional law, civil liberties and human rights, especially the intersection of women's rights, law and politics. She has also taught at universities throughout the US and abroad, lecturing in Australia, Tunisia, Egypt, Israel, the West Bank, Great Britain, Mexico, Czechoslovakia, Uzbekistan, Turkey and China. She has been an expert lecturer in the Middle East and Central Asia for the Department of State and for the US Supreme Court. She recently received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the ACLU, where she devoted 40 years as a researcher and board member. Dr. Strum is the author of award-winning books on human rights struggles, both in the US and internationally. One of her books, Louis D. Brandeis, Justice for the People, published in 1984, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography. Her most recent book, On Account of Sex, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Making of Gender Equality Law, was published just recently and is the subject of today's interview. Philippa, welcome to Delving In. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be talking with you. So you're pretty much in the same generation as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just about five years younger. That's right. And clearly a comrade in arms in the arena of women's rights. So before we get into the chronology of Ginsburg's early career, which is what your book is about, tell us about how you knew her. And aside from Ginsburg being an extraordinarily hardworking person with an outstandingly supportive and non-sexist husband, <laughs> what was she like and what was she like to be with? I met her in 1979 when I was doing a guest professorship at Barnard College in Manhattan, and she was still teaching at Columbia Law School, which was just about a block away. And at that point, she was on the board of the National ACLU, and she was also running the Women's Project there. And I was asked to run for the board. I didn't know whether I wanted to do it. I was raising a family. I was writing a book. I was teaching full time. So I cold called her and asked her if she would talk to me about it. And she pretty much talked me into running for the board. And that became 40 years later. Here I am. After that, when she became a justice of the Supreme Court, I asked if I could interview her each year just to find out what it was like to be the newest justice on the court. And then she was extraordinarily generous in all kinds of ways. For example, I asked her at one point if I could take my constitutional law class from Brooklyn College to hear oral argument at the Supreme Court. And these students, many of them were first generation college goers. Many of them were single parents. They were holding jobs as well as going to school. It would have been something extraordinary for them. And she immediately said yes. And she arranged for us for a number of years to do that, to sit in an oral argument. Um, And she would meet with the students afterward, take their questions. It, It was just one of the many ways in which she was incredibly generous. And also one of the ways in which she understood how important it was to educate about what the court did and does. Then after that, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a political scientist, so I don't have access to the Supreme Court Library, but there are things there that I have really needed for my research. 
first she got me access to the library in spite of my lack of credentials. And then after that became impossible, the library tightened up its rules. She would actually get the things I needed from the library and let me sit in her chambers and read them. And then we'd bump into each other frequently at the HT performances that the Metropolitan Opera puts on that you see in movie theaters. At one point, I met her during intermission, and she said, I have a question for you about your book about Brandeis. He stayed on the court for a long time, didn't he? He stayed on the court for more than 30 years, didn't he? And I said, yes, he did. And she said, oh, good. That means I have more years ahead of me. <laughs> then yet later on, I discovered that the wife of a Brandeis professor was knitting socks that commemorated famous women. And she had knit some RBG socks. So I asked her to send me a pair to send to RBG. And RBG immediately wrote a very gracious letter to the woman saying, I will definitely use these during my next workout. And the woman then was so chuffed by that, that she started a line of RBG working out socks, which again, I sent to Ruth. And again, she sent a, a very sweet letter of acknowledgement to the person who had done it. And, and that's simply the way she was. She was a warm, generous, very gracious human being. One of the things that she would say repeatedly was, my mother taught me to be a lady. And by that, she didn't mean somebody who wore white gloves or that kind of thing. But to be gracious, to be respectful of other human beings, that absolutely typified her. That's wonderful that you got a chance to get to know her, at least somewhat personally. That's really special. Can you also talk a bit about your own life work? Now, of course, that would take hours and hours. So maybe just one or two anecdotes about your work related to Ginsburg's work in the 70s. So something on women's rights during the 70s, let's say yourself. I had been pushing for women's rights in one way or another, I think, since I was a child, because I grew up in a family that absolutely believed in equality. And my parents, who had only daughters, always told me, you can be whatever you want to be. And they were endlessly supportive, which is rather wonderful. When much later on, when I was writing a book about a decision she wrote on the Supreme Court, a decision telling the Virginia Military Academy that it had to admit women after having refused to do so for about 130 years, I asked her if I could send her a draft of the book. And she very graciously read it. And I got it back with more red ink in the margins than I had experienced since high school. <laughs> and that wasn't usually the reaction that I got to many of my books. But I began by writing about the Supreme Court and about men on the Supreme Court, Brandeis, of course, because now we're talking about, I started my academic career back in the late 60s. We're talking about a time when if you wanted to get ahead in academia, you didn't write about women. Happily, that has changed, but that was the situation then. So while I was fervent, for example, on the ACLU board about having affirmative action for women 
not only in the world, but within the ACLU as well, because I felt we needed it. It wasn't until later when I got tenure and I was promoted and I decided I had the luxury of starting to focus more of my writing on women. And I don't think I would want to be put into a little box that said, oh, yeah, she writes about women. I think my box is such there is, it's about human beings and human rights and treating people equally in the institutions that have or have not done so. That's really when I came to the Woodrow Wilson Center for the job in 2001 as director of U.S. studies. The State Department started sending me out on lecture tours to all those wonderful countries you listed at the beginning of this program. And I discovered a whole new world out there. It wasn't that I hadn't traveled before, but going in at the level where you get to meet all different kinds of people, they're invited by the State Department or the American Embassy to meet you, was just an eye-opener. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East which was rather wonderful. And then all kinds of places I don't think I would have gotten to otherwise, like Uzbekistan, about which I'm sorry to say I knew almost nothing before I was invited to lecture there. And it was just a wonderful way of learning more about the width and breadth and variety of human beings all over the world. So that's really been the fun of my career. And I would imagine that the state of women's rights, even in the 70s, was quite different from country to country. Oh, it certainly was, and it certainly is today. I was just reading this morning about the way the Taliban in Afghanistan has now closed beauty parlors because they don't want women to congregate at all. One of the very last spaces that were available to women so that they could speak with each other. And you look at the situation of women in many other countries of the world. And it's appalling. On the other hand, there are countries that are way ahead of the United States, like some of the Scandinavian countries, where affirmative action for women or treating women equally has just been the norm since the 60s and 70s. So it's a very mixed kind of bad. Uh, and of course, women had the right to vote in other countries way earlier than the United States. I think New Zealand was one of the first, I think. Absolutely. Although women did get the right to vote in some states of the United States long before uh, they got the right to vote in the Constitution, which is the good news. It's still not exactly a cheery picture. Women today still make less than men do, even though they're doing the equal work. Women are still regarded with suspicion in many jobs, particularly blue-collar jobs. Still a mixed bag. We're not there to full equality yet. This is a, maybe a good segue to talk a little bit about the background before the 1970s. You know, what was the state of, of women's rights before G Ginsburg and others uh, started uh, litigation that eventually went to the Supreme Court to provide at least some measure of equality? I think the best way to say it is Women were not treated as equal citizens throughout most of American history. Just a quick example, in the late 19th century, the Supreme Court heard a case about a woman named Myra Bradwell, who ran a legal publication that became the biggest legal newsletter in the United States. 
she was married to a lawyer. And at one point she decided, I don't want to just write about the law. I want to be a lawyer. And so she did what both men and women did back in the 1870s when there weren't very many law schools in the United States. They did what was called reading law in the office of a lawyer, which means they would sit there reading the law books, watching the lawyer perform, and ultimately take a bar exam. So she did that, and she passed the bar exam with flying colors, and then she asked the Illinois Supreme Court that had control of these things to admit her to the legal bar. And they said, oh, no, don't be ridiculous. Women can't be lawyers. The laws of Illinois said that women can't be lawyers. And you're being ridiculous. Let me read you really quickly what one of the justices said when the case was heard by the Supreme Court. He said, the paramount destiny and mission of women are are the noble and benign offices of wife and mother. This is the law of the creator. And this was what the Supreme Court adhered to, not only through the 19th century, but into the 20th century as well, that women had no place in the public sphere, that women basically were not equal citizens. Because when the Supreme Court of the United States is saying, you can't be in professions like the legal profession, you can't vote, you can't do one thing after another, what they're really saying is, you're not equal citizens, your country doesn't need you. Your husband, your family needs you, but your country doesn't really need you. Quick segue to the 20th century. During the Second World War, as you no doubt know, so many of the men were fighting overseas that women began taking on the jobs that up until then they had not been able to do. And one of these women was a woman named Valentine Gosart whose husband owned a bar in Michigan. And while he was away, she managed the bar. And then sadly, he died and she took over the bar altogether. The Second World War was over. Men came back and across the country, men said, hey, we don't want women in these jobs anymore. We don't need this competition. And the Michigan legislature passed the law saying women cannot run bars. Women cannot own bars. They can run bars only if the bars are owned by their husbands. So she took that to the Supreme Court. And I'll tell you in a minute how she thought she might win. And the Supreme Court said, don't be ridiculous. Of course, women should be home with their children. And the court later on upheld laws that said women could work in bars and restaurants during the day, but not at night saying that the tender little ladies shouldn't be out at night. Essentially what that did was it prevented women from working at night when the tips were much greater. And so it took away part of their economic opportunities. All right, fast forward even closer to today, for some people like me at least, 1961, when the Supreme Court held in another case that it was fine for states effectively to keep women from serving on juries. So that the notion that we all had a right to a trial by a jury of our peers didn't apply to women because women could be tried in a courtroom only by men. And so that was the landscape 
when RBG began litigating for gender equality. That's a wonderful summary. And in fact, I was going to read the same quote of, of Justice Bradley as you did. One other quote uh, from your book that I think is uh, really uh, pithy is that you talked about the Supreme Court building facade, that there were marble statues entitled Authority of Law and Contemplation of Justice, and authority statue, the authority statue is male, and the contemplation oh. statue is female. Oh, yeah. And one, one is inside the Supreme Court and looks at all of the statues that are around the very top of the courtroom. They're men. They're men. And there was all kinds of stuff going on, even in, in the court itself, for example. Now, Ruth didn't get there until 1993. At that point, there had been only one other woman justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. And the two of them discovered that while there was a bathroom for men right outside the court, there was a courtroom that was none for women. Similarly, there were no convenient bathrooms for women visitors to the court. I mean, when I say it's taken a long time, we're not there yet. We're a little bit farther along than that. But the attitudes that are implicit in, in things like that are to some extent still with us. And that's really what she was litigating about back in the 1970s. So you mentioned what it was like for a woman at the Supreme Court. I imagine it was also difficult to just to be a law student in the first place. She was a, went to Harvard and then Columbia. And at Harvard, she was one of 10 women in a class of 500. And I was wondering, what was that like for her to be such a tiny minority? The interesting thing is that her consciousness wasn't sufficiently awakened then for her to rebel against that or for her to take much notice of it. As I mentioned in the book, we're back to bathroom stories here, forgive me. She discovered that there was only one bathroom for women in the buildings where the classes and exams were held. And it wasn't necessarily in the building where she had to take an exam. If a woman needed a bathroom, she had to leave the test, run to the other building in order to use the bathroom. And as she said, we didn't complain about it. We just took it as that's the way things were. So it took a while for her to realize how badly women were being discriminated against. And then after she graduated, she couldn't get a job. No law firm would hire her in New York City or anywhere, probably. That's right. Exactly. And then she graduated at the very top of her class from Columbia. And she'd been at the very top of her class at Harvard Law School as well. And the usual thing for people who graduate at the top of their classes at Ivy League Law School is to go to work as a clerk for a federal judge, sometimes for a state judge, but certainly for a judge. And her professors at Columbia, after she graduated, discovered, no, nobody wanted her. Even Felix Frankfurter, one of the great civil libertarians on the Supreme Court, was asked if he would take her on as a clerk. And he said, don't be ridiculous. I don't want a, a woman in my chambers. And so one of her professors had to twist the arm of a federal district court judge in New York who agreed to take her on as a clerk, but only if there was a male in reserve who would be prepared to run in when the judge discovered that RBG wasn't sufficiently capable. Happily, 
he found her thoroughly capable. And so she held on to that job for two years. So the understudy didn't have to ever come in, so to speak. <laughs> and then she wound up going to, to Sweden, doing some handling cases for Columbia Law School. And it was a real eye-opening experience because even back then, Sweden was more advanced with respect to women's rights than we were. Absolutely. And again, she was very lucky that Columbia had a program of sending American lawyers to other countries to study civil law so they could bring that information back to lawyers in the United States. And I, I say she was lucky to get that because that was a period when no law firm would have her. And so she, being RBG, an absolutely brilliant woman, just like that, learned Swedish, enough Swedish so that she could cope with Sweden, and ended up writing, co-authoring a book with a Swedish Supreme Court justice about civil procedure in Sweden, and then wrote a whole host of other articles about law in Sweden. And while she was there, she did see that Sweden was already deep into a discussion about the two-job trap for women, where women had to work in the paid workforce and then take on all the responsibilities at home. But just the fact that it was a two-job trap meant that they were ahead of most American women because women in Sweden were being welcomed into the paid workforce. And women, so Sweden had affirmative action policies. That was an eye-opener. While she was there, she also read Betty Friedan's The Second Sex, a very feminist track. And she thought that was really an eye-opener. But as she said, she put those eye-openers in the back of her head. And then she returned to the United States and she didn't really pull those experiences and those thoughts out of the back of her head into the front of her head until she began teaching at Rutgers Law School in the mid-1960s. Yeah, so she, I think, recognized early on that she could be uh, an academic and an activist, both, and both scholarship and social change. She was also one of the first women to teach or person to teach gender studies. She actually created a program, didn't she, at, at, at Rutgers? Yeah. By the late 1960s, remember, by that time, the women's movement had begun in the United States. Some of the people in her classes were women, which up until then had not been the norm because, remember, women had initially long since had been told by the Supreme Court they couldn't become lawyers at all. But even by the 1960s, women were not entirely welcomed in law school. So it took a while for enough young women to get to Rutgers while Ruth was there. And many of them came from the women's rights movement. They were activists themselves. And they asked her if she would consider doing something really radical, which was teach a course on women and the law. And she thought, I don't know whether I can do this, but let me do some reading and find out what's out there. And so she said it didn't take her very long to do everything, to read everything that had been written about women and law because there were so little. And that's when she discovered the cases that I've laid out for you about the Supreme Court holding that women couldn't become lawyers, and et cetera. And she decided, yes, she would give such a course. And so she did create it. And with a couple of people at other universities, other law schools, 
who were just starting to do the same thing, ultimately wrote a textbook about women in the law. And it was really interesting what she did. After a while, she went from Rutgers Law School to Columbia Law School, because by the early 1970s, Columbia Law School, which had only men on its faculty, had said, hey, maybe we're going to be in trouble with the government if we don't hire a few women. And so they had hired one other person before Ruth, although they didn't give the other person a tenure-track job. And Ruth moved to Columbia. And at the same time, the ACLU had decided that it wanted to do more in the field of what was then called sex equality. And I'll tell you in a minute why it was no, after a while, it was no longer called sex equality. And they created a women's rights program of which she became the first director. And by the early 1970s, she was working half-time at Columbia Law School and half-time at the ACLU Women's Rights Project, of which she became really the, the founder and the first director. So let's talk a bit about Ginsburg's strategy for social change. As you alluded to earlier, the, the assumptions about gender roles were really entrenched, especially on the Supreme Court, but not just on the Supreme Court. Throughout society, there was a very rigid uh, expectations about women's role, which wasn't entirely true. It wasn't true that all women were at home being homemakers and mothers. I and mean, that was a kind of a myth. You, you mentioned in the book that Ginsburg thought of herself as, as a teacher to the all-male Supreme Court justices. She felt they were so thoroughly unenlightened about the subject that she had to be like a grade school teacher to them. And right. I don't know if she, did she say that at the time or was it, did you say it later? Because it sounds so condescending in a way, uh, but it's understandably. Perhaps condescending, but very realistic. Exactly. Because that's essentially what she did. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of her saying it at the time. She may have thought it at the time, or she may have said it quietly, but not in public. But in any event, she knew that the men of the Supreme Court, and let's remember that we're talking about the 1970s here, there are no women on the Supreme Court yet. The men of the Supreme Court didn't really recognize two things. One, that women were already out in public life. And secondly, that they were being badly discriminated against. As she used to say, the men on the Supreme Court thought of themselves as good husbands, good fathers. It didn't occur to them that even the women in their own families were being held back by laws that were sadly out of date indeed, if they ever should have existed. And so what she had to do in her litigation was two things. One was teach them about what women were actually doing. And the second was getting them to apply a new way of thinking, doctrinal way of thinking, to uh, cases that came before the court. So in the first part, what she did was she gave them tons and tons of statistics about women out in the workplace, about what women were doing in all kinds of walks of life out in public. The second one was a little bit harder, and that was she had to get the judges to reinterpret the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Constitution was amended with the 14th Amendment, 
And one of his clauses said that states had to give everyone within their jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And ultimately, that was extended to the federal government as well. But here's the question. What does equal protection of the laws mean? Like many of the phrases in the U.S. Constitution, it's pretty vague. And it's left up to the Supreme Court to interpret it. Equal protection of the laws seems to mean people have to be treated equally. That's not entirely true. Think, for example, of the fact that a state can give driver's licenses to adults, but not to children. So that's not treating the children exactly equally, but there's a very good reason for that. And so what the Supreme Court had to do was figure out, all right, when is not treating people exactly the same way still not in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment? And eventually, starting in the 1940s, the Supreme Court began to uh, write decisions that said, if laws differentiate between people on the basis of race, we are going to look at those laws as if they belong to a suspect classification. And all that means is that there's something suspicious to the justices about laws that differentiate, say, between white and black people. And that meant that the justices would look at such laws with what they called skeptical scrutiny. So they would be skeptical about the legitimacy of the laws and they would scrutinize them really carefully. And what it also meant was that the, the burden of proof was on the government to justify the differentiation. That was a really high burden for any of the governments to meet. And so most of the laws gradually, as we all know, that upheld segregation were gradually struck down by the Supreme Court, particularly in Brown versus Board in 1954. What RBG decided she had to persuade the court to accept as a doctrine was just as it was wrong to write laws that differentiated on the basis of race, it was wrong to write laws that differentiated on the basis of sex. And that was truly revolutionary. That came as a great shock to the justices. She wanted them to put sex in the same category as race and say that sex is a suspect classification. So any laws differentiating between men and women would be looked at by the court with great scrutiny. And I'll tell you just as a kind of a quick addendum here, why gradually she no longer talked about sex discrimination. She talked about gender discrimination. There was a secretary at Columbia Law School who typed the briefs that RBG handed into the Supreme Court. And one day she said to her, as Ruth told the story later on, words to the effect of, look, you're using this word sex. And when these men see the word sex, they're not thinking about what you want them to think about. So how about using a more neutral term like gender? And from then on, Ruth, in her briefs, spoke only about gender discrimination. Yeah, that makes sense, because you don't hear about men uh, having gender on their minds all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so one, one thing you were getting at earlier is that uh, one of the strategies was to piggyback or, or equate sexism with racism. And that worked 
pretty well, but not, but it, it got into some trouble occasionally. So for instance, when there were laws that were discriminating against pregnant women, now that was something that was, could be true of a woman and nobody else. Only women get pregnant, despite, I guess this controversy is now about transgender pregnant people. But in general, it's a sex specific situation. And part of the argument was to say, you still shouldn't make a blanket judgment because not all pregnant women are incapable of working while they're pregnant. Exactly. And that's what she emphasized over and over again. And it's the reason also that she brought cases where men had been discriminated against on the basis of gender stereotyping, because she said, you've got to look at people as individuals. You can't put all people in categories like all men can do this job, but no women can do this job or vice versa for that matter. And so it, it was, as I said earlier, it was really revolutionary. And speaking of vice versa, one of her strategies was to really emphasize, especially at the beginning, cases that involved discrimination against men. And that really, I, I imagine, really caught the attention of these male justices. So what, what? sexism can work both ways. And, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that sexism is maybe clearer to combat when it's a violent or, or really damaging sexism. But there's also something called benevolent sexism, which is, I think, a lot of what was happening, that these justices and society in general thought that women needed protection, they needed to be treated gently, they needed to, to have extra care of various kinds, and aren't we being a good society but by recognizing their special role? And so there's a kind of benevolent sexism putting women on a pedestal. And I think, I don't know if it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said this, but it wasn't a pedestal, it was a cage. Yeah, it was actually one of the Grimm case sixers way back in the 1850s who said that and Ruth picked it up. Yes, absolutely. What the men of the Supreme Court, and not just the, of the Supreme Court, would say, men in state legislatures, men in the Congress of the United States said, how nice that we're protecting women. For example, it's great to say that women don't have to serve on juries the way men do, because you know what goes on in a courtroom. There's some dirty stuff being talked about there. Let's protect the women. And aren't they lucky that they don't have to have that responsibility. Of course, what they didn't realize and what RBG had to prove to them was that's also a way of saying women aren't as important to the justice system in the United States as men are. Women are not really as important to taking on the responsibilities of full citizens in the United States. You're treating women like little girls who have to be protected from the ugliness of life. Why are you doing that when we're talking about mature women? And that's the case that she had to make over and over again. And then you talk about the cases about men, even before she was litigating before the Supreme Court. And this actually became her first case about litigating for gender equality. There was a case back in 1971 of a man, a bachelor, who had never been married, who was taking care of an elderly mother who had physical and mental problems. He had a full-time job, and so he had to hire people to take care of his mother for quite a bit of time when he was away traveling on his job. He applied for a tax relief for, under the United States tax code, that said that 
people who were taking care, who had to hire people to help take care of disabled parents as well as others, could get a tax break, could get a tax deduction. Only the way the law read, it was limited to women. And the assumption, obviously, behind the people who wrote the law was that only women would want to take care of, would have the full responsibility of taking care of an elderly parent or a child or whatever. Ruth and her husband, Martin Ginsburg, who was a great tax lawyer, saw that the decision had been made against this man, Mr. Maurice, and said, we will bring this case into court. And they got in touch with him uh, when they called him and said, we're willing to take your case to court. His immediate response was, I, I must be getting a crank phone call. But they managed to convince him that they were serious about that. They took his case into court, went to a federal court of appeals, and they won it. And again, they won it on the basis of, hey, look, you're stereotyping. And this, what they did in getting the judges of the court to decide the way they did was to strike down the very first part of the Social Security Code that had ever been struck down by a court in the United States, by a federal court in the United States. That was one of the reasons her participation with her husband in that case was one of the reasons that she was looked at by the ACLU when they wanted to start a women's rights project and said, yes, this is the right person for the job. Ginsburg uh, readily admitted that she didn't do all this all by herself, even though she was one of the pioneers, that there was a change in the air, so to speak, uh, not just about sexism, but also about racism, civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. It was a very uh, fertile time for change. But one uh, you know, indicator of sort of societal changes of attitudes is that there was an early Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep movie, Kramer versus Kramer, which, which uh, was a movie about a custody battle. Uh, over a young child, and the Dustin Hoffman character was the more involved parent, and they have a huge litigation about who would be the, the primary custodial parent, and lo and behold, at the end of the movie, Dustin Hoffman wins, the father wins, and that was a radical thing at the time. Absolutely. I remember that movie very well. I was there kind of feeling for both of the parents, but hoping that it would turn out exactly the right way. All right, so that was just like the first case in which RBG submitted a brief to the Supreme Court, a case called Reed versus Reed, which had to do with an Idaho couple who were divorced. And they had a young son, a teenage son called Skip. When they divorced, the custody arrangement was that Sally Reed, the mother, would have custody for the most part but that Skip had to go to his father's house and his father's new family on weekends. And one weekend, Skip, who really disliked being there, called his mom and said, take me home. And what she had to say was, I can't. The court has said, your dad has a right to have you on the weekends. And Skip was so depressed by the whole thing that he went down to the basement of his father's home took his father's shotgun and killed himself. And so Sally, devastated by this, as you can imagine, went into court and asked that she be named the executor of Skip's estate. And there was almost nothing in it. He was a kid. 
But she didn't want the father to have even the personal stuff that had belonged to Skip. And the father, however, went into court also and applied to become executor of the estate. And what the Idaho court said was, no, according to Idaho law, if two parents apply to be an executor of an estate or just two people, a man and a woman, apply to be an executor of an estate, the man is automatically chosen. And obviously the assumption was, oh yeah, men understand these things, women don't. So Sally eventually managed to get her case to the attention of RBG and others. And so RBG wrote a brief that checking what we said earlier on was full of statistics about how women were performing all kinds of jobs throughout the country, including that of executor of estates, because of course, there were many women whose husbands had died and they had become the executors of their estates. And nobody was saying that they hadn't done a good job of that. And amazingly enough, the Supreme Court of the United States, this all-male court, agreed and said, yes, you're discriminating against women here without being able to show that there's a good reason for that kind of differentiation. That was a total landmark in American law. So I thought it would be fun to talk about an anecdote that it's almost like a comic relief now, but I'm sure it was not so comical. Maybe it was partly comical back then. And that's that Ginsburg had to hide her own pregnancy at Columbia because women were not supposed to teach if they were visibly pregnant. So she wore her mother-in-law's oversized clothes in order to hide it. Absolutely. Her mother-in-law was bigger than Ruth was. And so her clothes were bigger. And that's what she had to do. If she hadn't had her consciousness raised before that, wow, (laughs) did that ever do it? There were also some rather seemingly minor cases, but I think in order to make a point of the principle, there, there was a case involving discrimination against men for the minimum age for drinking very low alcohol beer. <laughs> that, w- w- that women could buy it in a certain state at 18 and men had to wait till 21. This was really just to, to make a point, I think, because I can't imagine that, that Ginsburg really cared about the issue per se. She cared more about the principle. She thought that the law that said, it's Oklahoma law, that said that women could buy near beer, which is 2% alcohol, at age 18. Uh, men had to wait until age 21. She just thought it was too silly. She just almost couldn't believe that there was such a law. And this, incidentally, was not one of the cases that she argued before the Supreme Court, but uh-huh. she wrote a really important brief in the case. And she, she, as I say, simply made fun of the law. But at the same time, she understood this was serious in the sense that it it was based on the assumption that young men drink and drink too much and then have car accidents, but that doesn't happen to women. But it's all men drink and get drunk. All women do not. That was exactly the kind of thing she was fighting against that kind of stereotyping. We have that kind of stereotyping in car rental rates. I I think it's still true that you have to be over the age of 25 and and not male. Whether you're male or female makes a difference on the insurance rates of because men, young men do get into more car accidents. So that seems like a situation where discrimination would almost make sense. It might, 
if you could prove that it's true of all men and that the opposite was true of all women. The fact that it's still a law doesn't mean that it's a good law or a good practice. Absolutely. And again, she what she was arguing against was not looking at people as individuals. Let's look at it this way. Tell me, what color are your eyes? Hazel. Okay, my <laughs> eyes are blue. How about a law that says all blue-eyed people are more capable of driving well than all hazel-eyed people? Now, that would be silly, right? And you would say that doesn't make any sense. Unless you can come up with statistics that show that more hazel-eyed people get into accidents than blue-eyed people. You know the reason for that. There are more hazel-eyed people in the in the world than there are blue-eyed people. Very simple. But if but to say that I am necessarily a safer driver than you, because I have blue eyes, you have hazel eyes. Oh, come on. But I let's get real here. And as I said, we still have remnants of this nonsensical thinking in our laws, but that doesn't mean that they're good laws. Yeah, and you could see how uh, tricky it might get. When you talk about eye color, of course, there is no relationship. But there, there are other things where there is one. For instance, how well you do on the eye test at the Department of Motor Vehicles has an impact on whether you're required to wear glasses. Right? That's a sensible restriction. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think she would have been the first to agree. And that's what the whole suspect classification is about. Suspect classification doesn't mean, oh, if you differentiate on the basis of anything, the law is going to be struck down. What it means is, all right, you're differentiating among people. Show us why. Show us that it's reasonable. And if you can show us that it's reasonable, that's fine. Just as I said early on, a state can say that adults can drive, but kids can't. Fine. It's not treating them equally, but it's reasonable. Okay, so let, let's get back into uh, pregnancy and childbirth, because that's a, a real difference. But as you understandably mentioned before, that's it, it doesn't affect all women the same way, at least not completely. But th that's one area where women have needed some special treatment in a way because th there, there's unequal conditions. For instance, allowing women to not lose their jobs, for instance, if they get pregnant, or allowing them to have a certain amount of time off when they give birth, those kind of things are, are important. And, and I think as you alluded to earlier, equal doesn't necessarily mean identical treatment. Equal means, part, part of what equal means is being treated, given what you need. Absolutely. Um, and that was something that RBG was criticized for by some feminists during the 1970s. And they would say, why are you telling the Supreme Court that men and women have to be treated equally, meaning the same way, when in fact, women need something else, like nursing mothers need time to nurse. And her answer was, I couldn't agree with you more, but at this moment, 1970s, what I have to convince the justices of is the fact that men and women basically should be treated equally, should be treated alike. Later on, we can get into the differentiations, and she was 100% with that later on. But... Yeah, of course. Again, it's treating people as individuals because you can't say that all women can get time off. All women who are mothers 
of young children get time off. Obviously, it's only the ones who are nursing who need that time off. And all young mothers, they're not nursing their children. So again, it's a matter of looking at people as individuals. Right. And then with nursing, of course, it makes sense to require companies to have rooms or conditions where women can nurse if they need to, if, if there's, let's say, a nursery on site, things like that. I, I mean, and there are other countries, I think, in Europe deal with this a lot better than we do, that oh, allow, allow for do. there to be a better work-life balance. Absolutely. And she certainly understood that. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things was that some of the women who were working in the Women's Rights Project did have young children, babies. And so the Women's Rights Project actually set up an office where women could nurse their babies and take care of the very little ones. So that became the first childcare facility that the ACLU had ever seen. Because she got that. She understood that completely. Let's talk a bit about Ginsburg's feelings about Roe v. Wade. I think this is really interesting and maybe somewhat confusing, but she made a statement in 1992 that she thought that the decision in Roe v. Wade had been overbroad. I, I didn't read this, but I just was wondering, was that said in preparation for her ascension to the Supreme Court, which is which, which was just a year later, that she had to hedge a bit? Or did, is that what she really believed? And I, I guess the thinking is that she did believe that because she was worried that it was not on a firm enough foundation the way it was decided, not that she was against the against the ruling altogether. Exactly. She said that first in a speech, and then the speech was published in, in a law journal, NYU Law Journal. And what she meant was exactly what you said. She The basis for the decision in Roe v. Wade, as it came down, was the right to privacy. Now, the right to privacy isn't mentioned in the Constitution at all. It is a judge-created right, if you will. It's an important right. I'm not knocking it at all. But it doesn't have a firm foundation in the Constitution. And what she thought was that if the court had simply based its decision on the basis of equal protection of the laws, that there would be a firm foundation because, of course, equal protection is part of the Constitution. And therefore, it might not have generated the anti-abortion rights movement the way it did across the United States. She was not in any way saying that she didn't believe absolutely in reproductive freedom. And in fact, when the Women's Rights Project was created, she wrote a proposal which would go to foundations so that they would give the ACLU money for the Women's Rights Project. Very prominent in that was reproductive freedom. But the major funder of the Women's Rights Project in its early days was the Ford Foundation. And for one reason or another, the Ford Foundation would not fund anything that involved abortion rights. And so the ACLU had to split off a separate reproductive freedom project from the Women's Rights Project, which made Ruth pretty unhappy because she was ready to litigate for reproductive freedom, including the right to abortion. So one of the things she said toward the end of this aspect of her career is that the progress had been very uneven. She said it went from no rights to half rights to confusing rights. And what did she mean by that? I, I guess there were some decisions that went the wrong way in her view, only one of which I think she was the actual litigator. 
because she was involved in, I think of the case she litigated, she only lost one, which is pretty amazing that she litigated to the Supreme Court. But what did she mean by the by that confusing rights? What was the state of this of the laws regarding women by the end of the 70s? What she meant was is talking about the, the case that you just mentioned, which involved a homeowner who was a widower and who asked for a tax deduction that would have been available had he been a widow and the Supreme Court said, no, it's fine that these deductions are available only to women because they're helping to compensate women for all the things that they've had to do, all the prejudice against them that they've had to experience throughout the ages. And and what Ruth hated about that decision was that it was based again on stereotyping. The assumption was all women have been discriminated against. All women need this money. No men have been discriminated against. No men need this money. And what she said was, this is really confusing. On the one hand, you're saying, okay, we're now going to treat men and women exactly alike. On the other hand, you're saying, no, we're going to give women this boost that she was saying, I'm not entirely sure that all women need at all. So this is confusing. What are you telling us here? And that's why she talked about confusing rights. She was really arguing against a case that involves something akin to affirmative action for women. And it's, it's really interesting. I, I think she she had such a clear idea of what was needed in the long run that it, it was a setback in a way to have affirmative action because it, it reinforced, this, as you say, the stereotyping of, about gender roles. Exactly. And and certainly that put, him, put her at odds with some uh, other members of the feminist community. And of course, it's something that one one can argue about, but she was very clear headed about it. Again, going full back to this notion, don't stereotype. We're getting close to the end of the interview. I wonder if you'd like to talk about the current state of affairs for women's rights. And are you worried that there's going to be a kind of retrenchment given the the composition of the courts right now and, and the what's been happening there? How could anybody who cares about gender equality <laughs> not be concerned right now? It's really devastating. It's not just that the court said there's no right to abortion, although that alone is so significant that I don't know what could be more significant. But while I don't recommend that everybody rush out and read the Supreme Court reports, if you look at Justice Alito's opinion for the court, it talks about women as being really inferior women as needing all kinds of protection, it really legitimizes the notion of women as second-class citizens in need of protection of the state. So it goes beyond the business just of the right to abortion. It goes to a view of women that we haven't seen articulated in the Supreme Court since the 1960s. And in that way, it is definitely a step backwards. After all, Alito was writing not only for himself, he was writing for a majority of the Supreme Court of the United States. Yes, I am very worried. What other retrenchments would you fear could happen? Once you say that women have to be treated as if they are in need of protection 
because that's what Justice Alito was saying, as I said, it goes beyond the abortion right, then you can go back to the laws of the 19, never mind, I was going to say the 1940s. You could go back to the laws of the 1890s and, and say, yeah, women should be kept out of this or that or the other because it's for their own protection. And I think you do see a really anti-woman tone in some of the rhetoric that comes from our political leaders today. So I think there are, even to this day, a lot of men and perhaps some women who are threatened by the idea of treating women exactly equally, which means treating them not only as having equal rights, but treating them as having equal responsibilities. And that may be frightening to some women, as I say, as well as men. So yeah, the implications are very far reaching. Okay, that's not exactly a cheerful note to end on, but a realistic one. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Philippa Strum, Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a, a professor emeritus at, at the City University of New York, a recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award by the ACLU, and so on. But today we've been talking about her recent book on account of sex, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Making of Gender Equality Law. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's been delightful talking with you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.